And I can gaze into Ezra's eyes. Deep brown pools of mystery. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined today by Ezra Klein. Uh, Sarah is in New Zealand, which I don't 100% believe is a real place. Uh, but we, Looks pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, it looks like the CGI from The Lord of the Rings, but <laughs> that, that doesn't bolster my conviction that well, it's we're, real. There's we're no in D.C. Orcs. where it's incredibly cold because, wait for it, hell has frozen over. And a Democrat has won the Alabama Senate race. Boom. See? Boom. Yeah. Yes, we, I sort of wanted to say that this morning. We delayed recording by a day so we could give you all of our, our hottest, freshest takes to to warm your hands. Uh, we, we Obviously, <laughs> we, we want to talk about the, the politics of this, but this is the weeds. And it's important to talk about the sort of immediate policy stakes here, uh, namely that Republicans are trying to pass a tax reform bill and losing a Senate seat could make that considerably harder. Uh, but they think they have a workaround. So, by the way, I do want to note how amazingly similar this feels to Obamacare. Yes. Right? Late in the Obamacare process, uh, pretty much at about the same point when the bill was going to be going to conference committee, there was the Massachusetts special Senate election where Scott Brown beat Martha Coakley. And it ultimately threw the whole thing into chaos, but not that much chaos. So I just want to bracket that as an interesting counterpoint here. But yes, so Republicans have this tax bill. And I think one of the things that makes this a little bit more complicated situation than it would normally be is the tax bill is well understood to be pretty poorly written. Um, there are some big problems in it. They're, they're in a conference committee now, so that process has started up. But there's just some issues, and they need to do some technical fixing. And so on the one hand, they could rush it. On the other hand, if they rush it, it's going to be even more of a disaster than it would otherwise be. Yes, and they are giving every indication that they are going to rush it. Right. Uh, uh, Kevin Brady, who was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, one of the sort of main intellectual architects of this project, he was saying yesterday, even before the election, that his view was that rather than having the conference committee go on for long enough to write a bill that he was satisfied with. They were going to rush out a bill by Friday, pass it in the Senate Monday, pass it in the House on Tuesday, and then he was going to separately from that write a technical corrections bill that would come out at some point later. So the the stated Republican plan is to throw together a bill so quickly that they can't write a bill that they're satisfied with and then deal with it later. When they said it before the election, I think that it had a bit of a, a tone of a you know boast. Um, and it was sort of a question in my mind, of like, well, why would they do that exactly? Uh, but now that, that Doug Jones has won, you know, there's a real pressure on. Uh, the Alabama Secretary of State can drag his feet on certifying the results for a couple of weeks. But Really, it'll be much easier for them if they just rush a bill through by early next week. And to rush a bill through by early next week, they probably cannot fully kick the tires on these different provisions. And they'll just have to deal with it. And some of them will tell themselves, you know, we can deal with it later. And others will tell themselves they probably don't care if tax avoidance becomes rampant. It is worth noting the astonishing, like galactic brain hypocrisy here of Mitch McConnell. So famously... In 2000 and, what is it, late 2015, Antonin Scalia dies? 
Mitch McConnell says that he cannot even hold a hearing on Merrick Garland, Barack Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, because, look, there's a presidential election. It's only a year away. (laughs) And the people need an opportunity to weigh in. So not that he's going to oppose Merrick Garland, which I think would have actually been a perfectly legitimate thing for him to do, but he will not even hold a hearing. The process needs to stop. It needs to not move forward. Because it cannot move forward until the American people get a chance to win. And here, the as far as everybody can tell, the plan is the people of Alabama have weighed in. They have said that they wanted a Democrat to represent them in the Senate in uh, from Alabama. And Mitch McConnell is going to rush a bill before that person is seated right. in order to not allow the people to have a voice. And this came up quite explicitly after the Scott Brown election, too. You know, yes. where Republicans right away were like, no, you know, you, you can't jam this. So, that said, you know, Mitch McConnell is a hypocrite. Whatever. I, I know. I, I, I just sometimes, I want to, there's like a kind of jaded amorality that takes over in politics. I agree that everybody's a hypocrite on process, and Democrats have had their own process hypocrisies in the past. But the Merrick Garland thing was so, was such an astonishing move. It was such a political power play. Yes. That it is the kind of hypocrisy that can set a new norm that you sometimes have to follow then in the future. But I, Right. But I, <laughs> I guess what I wanted to say about McConnell is that I, I feel like McConnell, for better or worse, has always been willing to wear the black hat. Yeah. In this kind of stuff. The hero Republicans need, not the hero they want. Right. And the people who I am more concerned with here, right, are some of the the people more on the fringes of the Republican Party leadership universe, right? I mean, whether that's your John McCain, who has like very explicitly said that he is concerned with the procedural right. mechanics of the Senate, whether that's Jeff Flake and Susan Collins, who claim to have various, like, side deals with leadership. Those are the people who, you could just bring this to a halt, right? Like, if Marco Rubio said tomorrow, hey, guys, I'm not getting what I want on the child tax credit. We're not doing this on Tuesday. Can we hold on Marco Rubio here for a minute? Because I think this is important. Um, I I just wanted to call up this tweet. And by the way, while I was calling it up, so you know Marco Rubio's new game of subtweeting Bible verses at Republican politicians he doesn't like? So it turns out this morning he tweets, for their good sense, people are praised, but the perverse of heart are despised. Proverbs 12, 8. Yes. So it's quite, quite quite a social media strategy he's developed. Anyway, so last night before all this went down, Marco Rubio tweeted, uh, what was not a proverb subtweet, what was a direct policy point. And what he said was that during the Senate uh, bill considerations, he wanted to change the corporate rate very, very slightly, like move from 20% to 20.94%. Um, and by the way, remember, the business roundtable, they asked for the corporate at 25%. So right. 20.94%, pretty fucking good. And he would have used that money to offer a much bigger child tax credit to poorer families. It was a straightforward good, like, would have helped the working poor policy. And Democrats didn't help because they didn't want to help with the tax bill. And his own Republicans just killed the thing. But also, he didn't insist. He did not insist on it. Um, And so now it looks like they're going to move the corporate up a little bit to pay for more tax cuts for bazillionaires. And so, again, Marco Rubio is tweeting annoyed things. Right. Um, But particularly now with the Doug Jones coming to the Senate— If he decided to put any kind of fight up whatsoever, he could have whatever he wants. Susan Collins could have whatever she wants. I mean, there's a way you legislate. You use leverage that you have. And, like, they have a shit ton of leverage now if they wanted to make this bill better in any way. Because even when Doug Jones came, 
Rubio and Collins together, I mean, hell, either one of them alone because Corker opposes the bill, the bill could still pass as long as it has um, no more than two Republican defections. So Rubio and Collins could like come together as a joint block and change it quite a bit. And this is what I'm saying. And even if they don't agree now, right, it's just anyone who has concerns with this bill could just derail this like madcap pass it on Tuesday scheme and say, no, like we're going to seat Doug Jones. I'm going to gain more leverage because they're losing Luther Strange is just a Mitch McConnell yes man and then we're gonna hash this out and like you could issue a, a narrow reason for that or a high-minded reason you could try to talk to John McCain who has a lot of feelings about process it, there's there's things that you could do and anyway just to bring this all back like I'm not surprised or even upset that like a party leader like Mitch McConnell would try to operate on pure opportunism grounds here. It's just normally caucus leaders are constrained by their own members who have substantive opinions about different things. I mean, about process, but also about policy content. And they don't just go along, right? Particularly because this bill is not polling well. Um, it's Donald, polling incredibly badly. Right. Donald Trump is not polling well. I, I, one of the striking things in Alabama was that it's not just that like Trump couldn't like pull more over, but he had a 45% approval rating in the Alabama exit polls. So nobody here is like being forced by the momentous politics of this to just kind of go along, get along. They are choosing or have been choosing to just sort of abdicate their authority to force changes in this. And I don't really know why. I mean, all throughout the Obamacare process, tons of Senate Democrats were just like, they were huge pains in the butt about it. And, you know, Harry Reid, sure, he was trying every which thing he could do to get it through and being quite agnostic about the content. I mean, he was being a, a legislative floor general. But it's like the way politics happens is that members of Congress have stuff they want to do or stuff they don't want to do. And they they like they try to get their way. And so much of this, this tax debate in particular, has been dominated by hardcore insistence on a 20% corporate tax rate, even though it doesn't work mathematically, and everyone else being willing to be sort of incredibly cheap dates about everything. Let's take a break and then talk about this broader context of the Republican Party right now. We're all looking for something. Uh, for some, it's love. For, for some, it's purpose or unforgettable experiences. Uh, but for a lot of us, you know, it's, it's just our damn keys uh, trying, trying to get out of the house. Uh, but eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device. And now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. Uh, with the Tracker Pixel, you never need to worry about losing your keys or anything else ever again. Uh, the Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You just put the Pixel on whatever you tend to lose, keys, wallets, purse, uh, different kinds little bags. I've got a toddler, so he's got lots of, you know, doohickeys we need to leave the house. It's small enough to fit anywhere. Then when you misplace an item that has Tracker Pixel attached, you just use your phone and a 60 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds, even as powerful LED lights so you can find anything in the dark. And then here's one of the best features. If the thing that you have lost is your phone, you just press the button on your Pixel, you know, like on your keychain or whatever, and your phone is going to ring even if it's on silent mode. So then you can find your phone. You can even locate your item if it's miles away because Every Tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. Um, it, it's amazing. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. Uh, so, so here's the basic deal. Tracker makes a great gift, and during this holiday season, you can save 20% off your order when you go to thetrackr.com slash weeds. That's thetrackr.com slash weeds for 20% off. 
thetracker.com slash weeds. Matt, you had a good piece in the aftermath of the the Alabama Senate results, putting this in context of the other special elections and just broadly where the Republican Party is. So I want to say that I think it's hard to pull too much generalizable lessons out of this. But on the other hand, it's not the only special election we've seen. So what's the big picture? Yeah, so, I mean, Roy Moore is, I just think, obviously a weak candidate. Uh, There was a lot of emphasis in the national press on sexual misconduct allegations against him. Uh, But Actually, even before that, right, he ran a very weak statewide race for chief judge in 2012. And before the Washington Post story broke, his polling lead over Doug Jones was four or five percent, which, you know, that's fine. uh, But that's actually terrible for a Republican in Alabama. He's just a a weak candidate and and has been for a long time. Uh, But we've also seen across about 60 special elections that there's a lot of variance, but Republicans are on average running nine points weaker than Trump ran against Hillary Clinton across a a range of geography. And a little bit contrary to some of the Trump country myth-making that's out there, They've actually been doing better in blue areas, particularly in uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, and incredibly weakly in a lot of red areas. They've done really, really poorly in Oklahoma, for example. If you were to throw this Alabama result in the mix, that would also be a a very weak performance in, in a red area. And basically, you have a situation where obviously some more specific factors, some news events are what put Doug Jones over the top. But you always have to ask yourself, I mean, just like people would say about Hillary Clinton, right? Which she could say, well, it was the Comey letter that did me in. But then people would say like, well, you know, why were you in a three-point race uh, with Donald Trump in the first place? And and that's kind of how it goes, right? And the question of like, why could Roy Moore be done in by a bad scandal story is that fundamentally the race was pretty close. And the race was pretty close because Republicans have been running really weakly all year, that Democrats have a high level of enthusiasm. Donald Trump is the least popular president at the end of his first year in office that we've ever had. And people... um, People don't necessarily feel it. There's still a lot of sentiment, like, how come Trump doesn't pay a price for any of this stuff? But the price he's not paying is an inside Washington, D.C. price, where congressional Republicans remain very solid with him. They're paying a huge price in public opinion, and they've paid a huge price every time there has been an election. Right. And one of the things here that I think is interesting is that you mentioned that the blue state special elections are actually doing better. My assumption on that is that in blue states, the Republican Party is more differentiated from the National Republican Party. That to, that to be a, Char- a Governor Charlie Baker or name your sort of popular blue state Republican, those Republicans do not yoke themselves to Donald Trump and, and Mitch McConnell. But in Alabama, they do. And in Oklahoma, they do. And these are places where then you have these kind of resistance dynamics among Democratic turnout enthusiasm. You have some level of depression dynamics among Republican turnout enthusiasm. And, and that's a pretty big deal. There is a tendency whenever there's a big election like this and an unexpected election like this to to draw out a lot of narrative. And and I do think narrative is hard here. I think that this was a tricky election because it has such idiosyncratic and specific factors. Roy Moore is a weak extremist Republican candidate who nevertheless won a Republican primary and then got even weaker as the general went on because of the the Washington Post reporting on his sexual on his sexual past and his predation of teenage women. Um, and by the way, like 
well done to the Washington Post for doing that work, right? That's, that, that is reporting that might have changed the course of the next couple of years of, of American politics. And the reason I say that is that in 2018, Democrats are facing like as bad a Senate map as you could possibly imagine. I believe that 34 seats are up, and of those 34, Democrats hold 25-ish of them. Um, now, most of the seats on both sides are not considered very competitive. Uh, and even Democrats who are up in a bunch of states that Trump won, like Missouri and West Virginia, they seem pretty solid given how things are how things are looking, um, Donnelly as well as Indiana. But they only really have two, maybe three pickup opportunities. So they've got uh, Nevada, which looks like a pretty good pickup opportunity because Dean Heller is pretty weak. Um, they've got Arizona, which looks like a good pickup opportunity because Democrats have a strong candidate. Um and Flake is retiring, and so now there's sort of some some friction there. But even Arizona is a little bit of a stretch election. Right. And then there's Tennessee, where Bob Corker is retiring, which is an even more stretch election, although Democrats have a little bit more hope because they have a pretty popular former governor, Phil Bredson, who's now decided to enter the race. But I think what you would have just said normally here is that of these three elections, like it would be like really uh, – a tremendous performance for Democrats to hold every seat they're defending and win two out of the three. Right. And as of two days ago, that would not have been enough to pick up the Senate. Right. But now it is enough to pick up the Senate. Right. And that is a plausible, if optimistic for Democrats, outcome. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like that one seat can, will, can and very well might be the difference between Democrats actually holding a genuine, like, branch of power and getting to run investigations, getting to decide committee chairmanships, getting to decide on judges, on executive branch nominations, on, on all these different things, and not. So putting all narrative aside, just the consequence of this could be really dramatic. Right. I mean, you know, we will have to see what happens. But yeah, I mean, we were previously looking at a very plausible scenario in which you could have imagined Democrats holding all these really tough races, West Virginia, North Dakota, Indiana, Missouri, and winning in Nevada. And everyone's saying, wow, what an impressive performance that was, given the map. But Republicans still control the Senate. Um, now, if the Democrats have an impressive performance, they will control the Senate. And that's because they've sort of got this random seat in Alabama. And it's worth saying that while the Alabama election is obviously fluky, um, Flukes are sort of the rule in Senate control, right? I mean, Republicans' 2010 sort of surge involved picking up a Senate seat in Illinois, uh, whereas the previous Democratic, like, 60 votes required them to win this race in Alaska that was driven by uh, eccentric corruption Although factors. notably, Republicans didn't take the Senate in 2010. One of the fluky things about Republicans for a number of years, including here— is they keep knocking out their strong candidates in primaries. Right. And uh, I think it was Matt Glassman um, at uh, Georgetown who was writing that if Republicans had not been primarying all their strong candidates for years now, you could totally be looking at a 56, 57 Senate. Right. If they them. hadn't had Todd Akin and— uh, They would have beat—if um, they hadn't nominated Sharon Angle, they probably would have beat Harry Reid a number of years before yeah. in Nevada. I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff like that. Mike Castle in Delaware, Richard Luger in Indiana. Right. But uh, that, that's just to say that, though, that— 
when Republicans took the Senate in 2014, or even when they held it in 20, when when Republicans took the Senate in 2014, having won a fluky race in Illinois several years earlier was an important part of that, right? right? So it's the same kind of thing, right? Like Doug Jones will be in the rearview mirror by the time the 2018 midterms happen, but like the seat still counts, and and it could easily put you over the top. It it matters in a concrete way. I, I would also say though that there were some. There are some disturbing signs for Republicans in what happened in Alabama in the the sort of the shape of the election. And in particular, the way that Jones seems to have done well in the suburbs of Birmingham and of Montgomery, because Birmingham and Montgomery are just like, those are not big cities. Like, those are the big cities of Alabama, but like, they're not big. Alabama doesn't have big cities, right? And when you looked at what happened in 2016, when you looked at the sort of Democratic gains in the suburbs, they were in the inner ring suburbs of really big cities, right? So like Trump did historically poorly for a Republican in, in Fairfield County in Connecticut. But he held up fine in like the suburbs of Milwaukee, in the suburbs of Detroit. That That's how he won. And what we saw in Virginia in the, the suburbs of Richmond, and what we saw again in this Alabama Senate race in the suburbs of Birmingham, is that kind of weakness slipping down into some much smaller kinds of communities and things like that. Now, you can't draw a straight line, but, you know, if you think about, like, what are the suburbs of Milwaukee like, they are somewhere in between the suburbs of New York City and the suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama. And it, you know, it just, it, it's an indication that a lot of people, I think, voted for Trump hoping that things would normalize after the election, right? Like, they were moved to an extent by some of the Clinton campaign's criticisms that, like, Trump was too crazy and was tweeting too much weird stuff. But they also had some confidence that, like, it would get better if he became president, which was actually an explicit thing Trump said, right? He said as a candidate that he wasn't going to tweet, that he was going to act so presidential. You wouldn't believe it? I'll be the most politically correct person in the world? Right. And, you know, you could say to yourself, like, well, why would anybody believe something like that? But you had to sympathize with people, right? There, There is tons and tons and tons of motivated reasoning in the world, right? If you have always been voting for Republicans and your party nominates this weirdo who does stuff that you think is inappropriate, but he's telling you that if he wins, he's going to behave more appropriately, you're going to be inclined to want to believe him. But then he becomes president and he doesn't do that. And the, the sort of nuttiness keeps accelerating and you're nominating Roy Moore and Gillespie is talking about our Confederate heritage. You know, I would say that the politician who probably woke up today feeling a lot more nervous than he had been is Ted Cruz. Yeah. So I think that if you look at the Senate map in 2018, you know, the the ones who people are looking at as competitive races are for Democrats are, um, again, Nevada, Arizona, and, and maybe as an outside play, Tennessee. But if you look at a state where Donald Trump really underperformed in 2016, you look at Texas. I mean, Arizona, too, actually, but like Texas. Uh, that was closer than states that people thought were much more in play. And, you know, Democrats have a pretty decent candidate out there in Beto O'Rourke. And they're going to raise money. And Ted Cruz is not a very well-liked politician just in general. And the sort of dynamics we saw in Alabama would be the sort of dynamics that would put a Texas in play. Very, very high turnout among non-white voters, 
very weak sort of Republican turnout in exurbs and, and, and suburbs. I don't think knocking Ted Cruz off is likely, but in a wave, that's the kind of thing that becomes possible in much the way that in the 2014 wave, Republicans picked up a Massachusetts governor seat. And, uh, you know, things like that can happen. Well, and candidate recruitment is important here, right? So it's, it's worth saying, right, Roy Moore would have won this election if Democrats had thrown up a sacrificial lamb to run against him. Right. Duggan is a very strong candidate biographically, a former U.S. attorney, a, a white guy who had a specific connection to the Alabama African-American community based on, on his work as a U.S. attorney. He got in the race not just before the Roy Moore scandals came out, but before Roy Moore had even won the nomination, right? At a time when he was probably drawing dead and you would have said, look, you can have a strong nominee, he can run a really great campaign. He's still going to lose in a landslide. Uh, Jones put himself forward there anyway, right? And that's something that you are seeing with Democrats just having really good recruitment, right? So Beto O'Rourke is giving up a safe House seat to take a long shot run at Ted Cruz. And that's the kind of thing that you need good luck to win tough races, but good luck doesn't help you if you don't have, like, real candidates in the field in all these things. Yeah, you can be lucky, but you still need to be good. Right. And, and in 2018, it looks like Democrats, both in the Senate and in the House, will have— Good. I mean, not everyone is perfect, but like solid good recruits in basically every race that they could conceivably win. So anybody who ends up getting tripped up by scandal or gaffes or, or something else like that is going to find themselves in, in trouble. We, we had a, a chart on, on Vox of, you know, how many candidates have declared and raised over $5,000. And it's like, there's no historical precedent. I just pulled up the numbers. I mean, the chart is really, really, really crazily striking. So th this chart comes from FEC data. Um, and uh, as Matt says, it's looking at sort of how many candidates have actually raised a little bit of money. And if you just look at this chart, it's in every, like, <laughs> recent year, every recent election, the number on both sides is under 100. Um, so there isn't an election going back through 2003. Three, um, a, a year sort of because we're looking at off-year fundraising, obviously. So there's a year like this going back to 2003, which is the first year on the chart, where you have more than 100 on either side. But do note that the highest year before now is 2009, so Republicans before the 2010 election, when Republicans at this point had 78 candidates who had uh, House challengers who had raised more than $5,000. Right now, Democrats have almost 400. Right. So, I mean, it's not just big. It is more than 4X anything that we have seen in the last decade or more. Right. And now some of that is that some of these California seats have like 17 Democratic yes. candidates running against each other. But nonetheless, I mean, it stands the point that Democrats have put themselves in a position to take advantage of good luck in a way yeah. that hadn't necessarily been true in the past. And that's that's the thing that happened in Alabama. I mean, they also got the good luck, but they were sort of ready for it. Um, they, they had a good candidate. They had, uh, I hadn't realized this actually, but but Joe Trippi, who uh, internet I had fans that. remember from the Howard Dean campaign, was, was running that race. Um, and, you know, I think it clearly made a big difference that Jones, for example, did a really good job in a way that John Ossoff did not do of making the pitch for Republicans to cross the aisle and vote for him in a way that did not aggravate liberals and, like, make them spend all their time, like, grumbling about what a lame message Doug Jones was running. They, they, he threaded that needle well, and that's also 
that's the kind of thing that's like a lesson that can be applied elsewhere, right? Because the the basic dynamic of you have an opportunity to win, but the underlying partisanship of the district is very Republican-heavy, so you need a way to convince Republicans to come to your side without seeming like a sellout to your own base. That's like— that that's a tough problem, but it's a general problem. And I think Jones showed a way to do it that was more effective than what Democrats had had in the past couple sort of runs at that kind of seat. So let's take a break, and then I want to come back and I want to talk about sort of my grim interpretation of what's going on here. People listen to this podcast, they're bright, they're curious, they're eager to know more. Uh, and, and if that fits you, and I'm sure it does, sign up for The Great Courses Plus. This is unlimited access to learn from some of the world's best professors about anything that interests you, like history, science, languages, how to appreciate wine, how to take better photos. There's over 8,500 lectures. That's like, it's a lot of lectures. You can watch from your TV, from your laptop, from your smartphone, wherever you want. Now you can stream the audio with The Great Courses Plus app and switch from audio to video whenever you want. So you can have it on audio while you're you're sort of walking home and then relax, put it on the video mode. It's great. It's super easy. Uh, something I've been listening to recently is The Great Courses Plus's course on the modern political tradition. It's a fascinating look into the way theorists over the last few centuries have approached the question of how a state is best governed, examining fundamental notions like, like freedom and, and rights. Um, it all goes back to Hobbes. Everything does in political life. Um, if you care about politics, it is interesting to step back and look at this class and understand the sort of like really big 50 million miles up uh, worldview. So I'm a big fan of The Great Courses Plus. I want you to experience too. They're giving our listeners unlimited access to enjoy all their courses free for one month, but you need to sign up with our special URL. Uh, so start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. All right, Ezra, you're grim. This I is, am a little grimmer than everybody else. We're more almost one, and he's bad. So it is true that um, last night <laughs> we did not end up electing a serial child predator who believes Muslims should not be allowed to serve in Congress, homosexuality should be illegal, and federal law should be superseded by his like personal interpretation of the Bible. And that is a low bar to clear, but I'm I'm I I'm glad we cleared it. Like that's good. Uh, on the other hand, if all those things were true except for the serial predation on teenagers, Roy Moore pretty clearly would have been elected. And I do think we need to do some reckoning with the fact still that we are a country. I mean, Alabama is a state, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm an American. Alabama is part of my country. That we are a country that almost elected Roy Moore and that did elect Donald Trump. And obviously in both these cases, it's a little bit weird because Roy Moore appears to have he will lose the vote by less than Donald Trump lost the popular vote, I think, um, yes. given, given what I've seen. So it's also the case that if the way Alabama Senate elections worked was that you could lose the popular vote, but if you ran really strong in rural areas, you just won anyway. Roy like, Moore carried six out of seven House districts. Yeah, it's fucking Alabama. wild, isn't it? That's also something we should talk about in the pessimism section here. But I, I just think that Roy Moore, like Trump, is an example of something reasonably important. So... Yes, there's a big swing in Alabama, but of Republicans who turn out to vote, Roy Moore still wins 91% of them, according to exit polls. And the way he wins them is not that they come out and say, well, we're going to vote for the child predator because he's going to be for tax reform, we think. The way he wins them is that they say, we don't believe the allegations. We think it's all made up. We think it's all bullshit. I mean, this is despite 
more being banned from the local mall, despite multiple unconnected women coming forward, despite, you know, the yearbook thing. Um, There's a lot of evidence here. Uh, And obviously, Donald Trump, before more, was literally caught on tape. It wasn't just all these women came forward, but Donald Trump was literally caught on tape saying that he does the thing they all accused him of doing. So there is this line from Julia Zari, who's a political scientist who writes um, uh, at the Mistress of Factions blog for Vox, that that I just think is a really important thing to to keep in mind in in this age of American politics. Because, like, to me, it is, like, the most important sentence, which is that this is an era of weak parties and strong partisanship. And, and what she means is that these are weak parties and that they're not able to exert a lot of control over their own decision making. So the Republican Party did not want Donald Trump to be its nominee, but he was anyway. The Republican Party did not want Roy Moore to be their nominee. I'm not just Mitch McConnell, but Donald Trump was against him. But Roy Moore was a Republican nominee anyway. So primaries, which used to be a way the system guarded itself against demagogic, unqualified, unfit, amateur candidates, um, that has become, that gate has fallen, right? So that's become like a very porous entry point. But it, and that might be fine if the way that parties were weakening was also a way in which partisanship was weakening. So yeah, you might get a crazy Republican now and again, but people just be like, eh, and vote for the Democrat or vice versa. But that's not happening. At the same time, the parties are weakening. Partisanship is strengthening. Uh, People are more afraid of the other party. So negative partisanship, the feeling if you're a Republican that you hate and fear Democrats is much stronger if you're a Democrat that you hate and fear Republicans. In a world of social media and partisan media and ability to choose your own media, just informational dynamics are much more complex and it's much easier to cocoon yourself in a friendly informational environment. And so to believe that, you know, all the Roy Moore allegations have been discredited and, you know, nothing is really sticking or the same thing with Donald Trump. And so we end up having a situation where you have primaries that parties can't control. And so pretty unfit candidates can win them. But once they win them, they're guaranteed the overwhelming support of their party's base, which means they start pretty close to winning the election. And this is just a way in which I, I used a, in a piece of on this, like a software analogy, like a way in which malware can really enter the political system. Yeah, although I, I want to draw a distinction, two twofold distinctions here, right? One is Roy Moore's sort of persistence post the sexual assault allegations, which it's crazy that the psychological dynamics that lead people to say, I'm going to choose to believe that all these women are lying rather than choose to admit to myself that I just don't care and want a Republican in office are are sort of fascinating, but also strikes me as in its way defensible. I, I mean, a senator's job is really to just, like, vote on bills. And saying you prefer a senator who's going to vote the way you want on bills to one who's going to vote the way you don't want seems kind of normal to me. But a weird thing about America is that nobody wants to say, right. like, oh, I'm a blind partisan. So, so you get into this kind of crazy town thing. The striking thing about Moore, though, is that, it, as you were saying, before these Washington Post stories came out, Republican leaders in the state and around the country did not want Roy Moore to be their nominee. Roy Moore's stances on issues were, in fact, considered a little loopy by Republicans. And they they really tried to make Luther Strange be their nominee, and they failed anyway. And that's that's the weak parties. You know, not the, like, dealing with poorly timed scandal allegations, but, like, in advance. Everyone was like, let's not nominate this guy. And then Alabama voters did— But there, 
I don't think you have weak parties. It's just a weak Republican party. Um, they have done this over and over again. I mean, we were talking about uh, uh uh, the, the Aiken nomination in Missouri. Uh, there was the the thing. Uh, Delaware was actually the craziest one of them. Where like absolutely, D- Delaware had been represented by an out, at-large House member, Mike Castle, for a long time, and he lost in a primary to like a total kook. And they took what should have been a for win- people who don't remember this. Um, this is Christine McDonnell. O'Donnell. O'Donnell. Yeah. All right, maybe. <laughs> uh, who like famous like you know like. Uh, I am not a witch. I'm. I mean, it was a bananas Wait, election. A, a, a statewide elected official lost a primary to like a nobody who was saying crazy stuff and was clearly going to lose the election, and she beat him anyway. Democrats do not have a track record of that kind of thing happening. Now, we did see in the 2016 primary that like all the party establishment wanting to line things up for Hillary Clinton just so didn't didn't quite work out. It didn't stop people from wanting to vote for Bernie Sanders. But Bernie Sanders was also like a real politician, not like some goofy guy from, from you know, Venus or, or something like that. And this is because in the Republican Party, a couple of media institutions have become just incredibly powerful. And Talk radio hosts, Fox News, Breitbart, they wield their influence inside the Republican Party in an odd way, right? I mean, normally party actors, whether you, whether they're like old-timey bosses or new school interest groups, they have some kind of objectives that they are trying to advance, and they make an effort to think strategically about what it is they're doing, where it's like, I have no idea what Steve Bannon is trying to accomplish with these Breitbart primaries, there's all these quotes, so people will be like, oh, Bannon has this vision, and there'll be like some sentences outlining it, and then he'll say something. And his quotes, they're just, they're always nonsense, right? Like, they they make no sense on their own terms, they don't correspond to what he's actually doing, and yet these people are incredibly powerful. Like, so much is hinging on the odd whims of Rupert Murdoch. On So this is a conversation, I have a podcast cast interview this week, which I think we listeners actually really will like, um, with Paul Krugman, where we just talk about a million policy topics, yeah. and so people will enjoy that. But at the end, we begin talking about a relative of this, and I'd actually like to pose this question to you. So on the Democratic side, the question for me that I don't have an answer to is, are Democrats just 10 years behind Republicans on their primary system breaking down? Because I think if you look at the anger about the Democratic primaries in 2016, the efforts, you know, the fight over how the DNC rules go forward, Democrats and progressive interest groups have not yet weaponized primaries. But if it happened that they began to do that in the next decade, it would not surprise me. I see a lot of the sort of predicates for that um, ideologically emerging on the left of the Democratic Party. doesn't mean they will. But— I am pretty interested in political psychology, and I've looked at a lot of these studies about liberals and conservatives and, and all of this, and, and I get emails from very liberal people and very conservative people, and it all looks to me, both on the evidence level and the anecdotal level, that very liberal people and very conservative people are pretty sort of similar in their willingness to mo- do motivated reasoning, to believe things that they find congenial, to believe conspiracy theories about the other side or about their side, whatever it might be. Systematically and for a long time now— Democratic institutions, the mediating institutions of the Democratic Party um, or of the left broadly defined in America, have been much more responsible and sober-minded than the ones on the right. 
Um, there are things that on the left could have achieved climate change denial like status, um, and they haven't. Like the like, if you look at sort of left of center media, it has not like fallen off the cliff on GMOs or something. And you know, there is just a there's a systematic difference in the ways in which I think left of center institutions have tried to hold a certain set of values, um, and the ways in which. Some right-of-center institutions have, but the ones who have have fallen in importance, whereas, like, Breitbart and, um, you know, these sort of, like, new players have emerged. And so, to me, a lot of this is in the sort of institutional structure. I mean, another way of just putting this is, like, look at the Fox News and MSNBC primetime lineups. Uh-huh. Uh, on Fox News at 8 p.m., you have Sean Hannity, I think. Is he at 8 I have no idea. Well, he's somewhere there. <laughs> he's there. He's there. 8 p.m. or something, Sean Hannity. Laura Ingram's up there, too. Tucker. Tucker. And, like, they have all just, like, become total, like, Trump-bought, bizarre, conspiracy-minded. Hannity's become very conspiratorial. And it's, like, then on the left, you have MSNBC. You have Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell. And, like, say what you will, like, they are just not analogs to Sean Hannity. Like, they, like— Chris Hayes, who I think is, if I'm right about what the time frames are, I think is up against Hannity, just does not do conspiracy theories. Like, he just doesn't. He's a good journalist. There's something different happening in these institutions, and it is important because, as you say, these institutions are a mediating layer between, like, these primary voters and, like, the political world. And the Republican Party is collapsing at that layer. And the Democratic Party, even in a time where there is clear disruption going on and, and other things— has retained a fair amount of ability to to try to act with good information and you know and and some sort of long term strategic thinking. Well, the the other the difference that that I would draw is that you know Republicans had a period in the eighties and nineties in which what was happening in primaries is that the party was becoming more ideologically rigorous and in some ways more ideologically rigid. You know, and conservatives were beating moderates uh, in primary races. This is how, like, Pat Toomey replaces Arlen Specter because Republicans in Pennsylvania start saying, look, we're going to send a down-the-line conservative up as our candidate. Well, that's not till the 2000s. Yes, well, yeah. but, I mean, but I mean, that's a very classic yeah. sort of mode. But Pat Toomey was a member of the House of Representatives. He represented a more conservative district, a a relatively conservative part of Pennsylvania. He had a network with a conservative donor base. He had views more in line with the NRA, things like that. But it was still, to me, that's like within the realm of normal politics. You know, like these reasonable people can disagree about whether you should put forward a more moderate candidate who is more likely to win the election or a more ideologically rigorous candidate who is more likely to do what you want, even if he he ends up losing, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that political parties just need to think about all the time, right? Doug Jones ran in Alabama as a very solid pro-choice guy, which back when, before people knew he was going to win, there was like a, a lot of second guessing about that, right? Wouldn't it have made more sense to have like a pro-life moderate Democrat in there? They went with a pro-choice guy. Uh, so be it. What you've started to see in Republican circles, though, is things like Roy Moore winning a nomination, things like Donald Trump winning a nomination, things like Christine O'Donnell winning a nomination. Well, these are not people who are like, given it to you with, like, the hardcore ideology that people really want. It's just a kind of craziness 
that I don't know what what it goes to show, right? It was like the case for Roy Moore was that he's so terrible that everybody says he's terrible. And it was like, so there you see, right? Like the media, they say Roy Moore is terrible. Mitch McConnell says Roy Moore is terrible. Even Donald Trump says Roy Moore is terrible. So go vote for Roy Moore. And that was persuasive to people in Republican circles. And I don't, I don't know why. And I just, I don't see a Democratic version of that. I, I think you can see confirmation bias among liberals. I think you can see all the kind of psychological maladies that come out there. But liberal voters are trying to get people who they agree with into office on things. I don't think that Roy Moore's voters would be happy at all to see the United States adopt the fair tax that Roy Moore ran on. I don't think Donald Trump's supporters are going to be happy about this uh, this tax bill that they're pushing, right? He's simply not fulfilling, like, any of his campaign promises on health care, on bank regulation, on, on anything. And yet you have this Fox News, you have this, like, media show that just keeps being about how Donald Trump is good. But it's not making the case for the things that Donald Trump is doing, and it's not holding Donald Trump to the commitments that Donald Trump himself made. And it doesn't appear to have any real purpose in life, right? Like, you could imagine liberals in the media, liberal interest groups, uh, coming up with a crazy conspiracy theory about why some scandal about a Democrat isn't true. I, I remember, actually, I'll, 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 I'll speak of my own confirmation bias. When it first started to seem like uh, John Edwards was uh, going to be brought down by a uh, really tawdry sex scandal, I really didn't want to believe it. I really liked John Edwards. I, I, I liked uh, his team. I liked his issue positions. And I was, like, incredibly averse to believing the truth about John Edwards. That being said, I really did like John Edwards and his policy positions. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't just, like, out to sea somewhere, and I liked this guy for no reason at all. And to me, that's what you're seeing in Republican politics. That's a place where I think that this is one of these— I think when liberals talk about conservatives, they often get sort of, like, really economically materialistic about what it means to agree with someone. And I think that I agree with what you're saying about Donald Trump's tax plan, about Roy Moore's tax plan. But my sense is that for a lot of their supporters, there is a set of cultural issues and cultural stances and cultural collisions that feel very important. And maybe as a kind of shortcut, which we all make to understanding who's going to be on our side and is going to govern govern it on our in our interests, actually even makes sense. But, I mean, it is just the case that the only reason Roy Moore lost— is that non-white voters in Alabama voted against him. I mean, overwhelmingly right. white voters, white men voted for him. Right. Exit polls are tricky, so I, I saw that some people are suggesting we don't really know, but white women appear to have voted for him too in the 2016 election. Both white men and white women voted for Donald Trump. Like, there do seem to be elements of, like, my tribe versus your tribe. And I just want to note that in, like, the long sweep of human history, it is not that you know, the only rational way to choose a leader is, like, whose tax policy is going to, like, benefit my family more. So I want to, like, note that because I I do think it's important. But by the same token, I also think something that is going on and and is also similarly somewhat tribal does have to do with a pretty longstanding effort on the Republican side to delegitimize institutions that they felt and sometimes felt with reason were biased against them. 
um, Republicans feel the media is full of like people who are personally liberal, and mm-hmm. I think that's basically true. Um, they're not liberal in the sense of like being a Bernie Sanders supporter. They're liberal in the sense of like having cosmopolitan values. Like they like believe immigrants are good. They don't believe single payer is good, but they are like pro-life and, you know, live in big cities and, sure. and, and stuff like that. Um, same thing about academia. But what it has meant for for an extended period of time is that, you know, Republicans are eroding their basis faith in these institutions, at least are trying to have incentives that are not purely political and are trying to, I mean, the, like BuzzFeed is a liberal organization that um, nevertheless was happy to report that John Conyers has sexual harassment, you know, rulings on him and, you know, and has brought down John Conyers. And so I think that there is a real problem here where people like Ryan and McConnell who are wandering around even now saying, hey, our tax is going to pay for themselves. Don't worry about what all the economists say. And have spent so long telling their own base not to listen to these institutions. So now the only institutions they listen to are Fox News and Breitbart and, and, and so on and so forth. And that has been really bad. Now, why Fox News and Breitbart and Daily Caller and some of these other players are so irresponsible and like anti-strategic, I don't have a great answer for. But I, I do think that I do think that's part of it. I think that there's an interesting Pew study about who different, who Trump and Clinton voters listen to in the media. And Clinton voters like have this like, their most trusted media sources are a bunch of like what we would think of as mainstream sources, New York Times, NPR, CNN, and you know, like blah, 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 blah. And just Trump voters, it was overwhelmingly Fox News. Like there's a diversity of media supporters, of media sources that liberals tend to look to and a, and a much more uniform diet among more hardcore conservatives. And I I think that has created more also of a fragility. It's really important that Fox News isn't irresponsible, but it is. Wait, I mean, my my, my grandmother was the the biggest fan of the MSNBC primetime lineup that that I ever saw in in the universe. You know, she's just like worshipped Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, that kind of stuff. But she still read the New York Times. You know, like she really enjoyed like liberal opinion-y broadcasting, but she also knew what it was. And, like, also wanted to see news sources that would sometimes annoy her by being too, quote-unquote, objective. Because—and I just—to me, that's, like, a normal person approach to life, to, like, both enjoy having all your biases confirmed, but to also sometimes, like, want to see what's going on out there. And that is very different from the, like, 24-7 Fox News viewer who's, like, in this closed, closed loop of things— and I do think part of that is that, you know, you were talking about tribalism, right? But the tribal composition of the partisan coalitions is very different, right? The Republicans have a very homogenous sort of group of people who are behind them. Whereas Democrats, if you sort of got a 1,000 Hillary Clinton voters together in a room, uh, you know, a demographically representative group, there would be tremendous diversity between them. You know, you would have like some, I don't know, like college professors, but also lots of working class Latinos and, you know, people who would not necessarily feel great kinship for one another outside of the context of American two-party politics. And I think that a diverse group of people to collaborate together requires institutions that have some kind of value set that is 
like outside of, of that that universe. They need something that resembles honest brokers or some kind of appeals that you know, go beyond very narrow tribalism. And then if you see the exact same people, right, if you just look at a big city mayor's race, you will see really, really rigid, like, ethnic bloc voting by Democratic voters. They're not, like, psychologically immune to pure tribalism, but structurally speaking, it doesn't doesn't work in American politics to, like, activate the generic Democrat because it's too many different kinds of people. And I, and I think that that is something that you see over and over again. I mean, you see— It's funny. It's true in the primaries, too. It's one reason the Democratic primaries don't all fall in one direction. Right. Right? Hillary Clinton won because she activated a different Democratic set than Bernie Sanders did. Yeah, exactly. And, and there were there were more people in hers. But it's, you, you, it's, it's just it's hard. I mean, the, the Democratic coalition is a little bit more unwieldy, uh, but it also means that the institutions that seek to govern it need to be a little bit more outside of people's kind of knee-jerk prejudices, whereas you can sort of master the, the Republican Party from very much just like like inside the bubble in, in a way that I don't think works quite as well for, for Democrats. Uh, and in some sense, I mean, like, that's how you get Roy Moore, right? There's like a critical mass of like deeply, profoundly, instinctually, tribally conservative people in Alabama, such that a guy who nobody looked at objectively and was like, this should be our nominee, can still carry it forward. And it's it's just, it's hard to do that as a Democrat. So to bring this back, I would just say that you know, we we can sort of theorize about this. And, and I want to, it's like an uncomfortable form of theorizing. Like, I want to be like, nope, like both sides have some good points. and But that's not, we are in a position where 71% of Alabama Republicans did not believe the allegation against, against Roy Moore. Um, we are literally in a world where Donald Trump is president. Like, we have to take that something is going wrong in the Republican Party seriously because, like, it has gone so seriously wrong that it now controls nuclear weapons. Um, we don't have a fix for this, but... we could have been in a position. One percentage point of the vote in Alabama flipping last night would have meant Roy Moore is senator, probably forever, given the dynamics of that. Um, And again, like Donald Trump is our president. And so we are watching a situation in American politics where it is clear that Republicans have lost control of their primaries, where it is clear that having lost control of their primaries, really, really unfit and extreme candidates can win their primaries. And that because of the dynamics of partisanship of elections and other things, those unfit candidates then have a very good shot of winning elections. And this is a way in which our system safeguards against really, really, really bad people holding a lot of power are failing. And last night, was like ultimately a good night. It didn't happen, but it came close to happening. And and I just we don't have an answer for this. And I think it is something that we should we should continue to be to be genuinely concerned about. One answer, of course, is to recommend your favorite podcasts to all your friends and family, sure. to listen to other Vox Media podcasts, uh, to join the Weeds Facebook group and, and comment there, to uh, to subscribe to the Weeds newsletter and get a daily dose of policy and, and fun. Uh, so really I'm optimistic in a way that that Ezra is not because there's so much ways to engage with the Weeds podcast. And that fundamentally gives me hope. Uh, So thanks to all of you for for listening. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard. And we're going to be back in a couple of days.